right, Ephesians. We are there. If you want to start to turn or tap to chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, believe it or not, we are in our second to last week in our series in the letter to the Ephesians. We've called Collective Again. We've been using Ephesians as a guide in kind of rebuilding, relaunching, coming out of this kind of COVID pandemic year of online church services and kind of disembodied life of the church. This letter has been kind of our our guide of kind of reconsidering what does it actually mean to be a, a Christian, to be the church, to be an embodied community of the people of God on the west side of Los Angeles. This letter has been guiding us through, but we are almost done. After the past two weeks with the Apostle Paul detailing what our collective transformation looks like, being born and living out into this kind of new humanity calling that is the church, this week Paul is going to be discussing what that new humanity, that gospel-made family, what impact does that make on society? What impact does that make in the relationships that we find ourselves in outside of this room during the rest of the week? And so in Ephesians, like I said, chapter 5 and verse 21 is where we'll begin. If you want to turn or tap your way there, Paul is going to specifically detail that new humanity impact in these relationships of marriage, children, and slavery. Now, those three, maybe the third one sent you for a loop, but those three are are loaded topics for many reasons. Uh, The first being, with the mention of slavery, uh, justice, uh, that Paul would speak to this and maybe not speak to it the way that we would or maybe we would expect or want. Or even personally, when Paul or anywhere in the Bible begins to talk about marriage, it brings up our own tension within our maybe failed marriages, our present marriage or the, the absence of marriage and desiring that. Or anytime the Bible talks about parents, we immediately read in that our relationship with our parents. Maybe for some of us, our desire to be a parent in the long troublesome and and difficult road that's been. This is a loaded text for so many reasons, and it could cause us then to approach passages like this with a lot of suspicion, where we are coming from a posture where, okay, this is what Paul's saying, and then we don't expect Ryan to either explain away everything that we've just read for me, or to fit perfectly within the traditional categories of how I've understood this text. My invitation for us today is to set aside our suspicion, my prayer for today, is to set aside those, excuse me, set aside those suspicions and to put on curiosity, to set aside suspicion and put on curiosity. What are you getting at here, Paul? For Christians, those of us here who believe the Bible to be the inspired, you know, spirit-given book that working through Paul's writings, I think this has earned our curiosity. For some of you that are maybe a skeptic, you're investigating the Christian faith, my hope is if you've been with us over the past few weeks moving through Ephesians, that Paul's earned your curiosity. Hearing everything from chapter 2, Paul talking about the dividing wall of hostility between races being broken down, this new humanity calling that hopefully Paul's earned at least your curiosity on these topics. And so with that being said, let's read Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. I'm going to pray at the end of it, and as we do, as we've done, you will hear me reading y'all, where we read you's. And that's because, once again, Paul, we don't have what's called the second person plural in the English language. Paul did in the Greek that he was writing. So I'm bringing that y'all out to kind of help us see that what Paul's writing is not a letter written to individuals, but a collective people, a plural, a community. So Ephesians 5, let's get right into the fun. Is that the right word? Ephesians 5, verse 21. Let's read this, and then I'll pray. Paul writes, Submitting to one another... 
out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to y'all's own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love y'all's wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that Christ may sanctify her being the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you, each one of y'all, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey y'all's parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor y'all's father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with y'all, and y'all may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke y'all's children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey y'all's earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or slave. It's free. Masters, do the same to them. Stop y'all's threatening, knowing that he is, who is both their master and y'all's is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Let's pray. So, Father, this feels like a a fire hydrant of, uh, of questions. Not only in, in what is Paul getting at, but what does this mean when, when he was writing it for us today? And so our, our, our prayer here is that you might help us uh, in the next few minutes as we begin to consider Paul's words, believing that your spirit was inspiring them and continues to speak through them today, that you would help us to consider what this means. And ultimately, that would see that it is the work of your son, Jesus, who revolves around all of this. And we pray. Amen. Well, it may come as no surprise to many of you that throughout history, portions of this passage have been utilized and used by abusive parents, abusive husbands, and slave masters. There you go. The Bible tells you so. Knowing that this is how texts like this have been used throughout history, we then now avoid passages like this as kind of the no-go zone in our Bible. Or we cherry-pick Paul's words to the husbands and wives, and you know, we move and apply those over to children and parents, but then we avoid slavery altogether. Or we, we turn it over into language about our relationship with our bosses and our employers and you know, us as employees. In avoiding the main thrust of what Paul's developing here, in many ways, we confirm the interpretation of how this text has been used throughout history. 
by not going into this text, by avoiding it, we more or less say, well, I guess the abusers and the enslavers were right. That's what Paul meant. So it's best if we just kind of move on from that. We confirm the interpretation. We can confirm that way of holding the scriptures. And the thing is, is I'm not interested in that sort of a Bible where like the enslavers or abusers, they can cherry pick their Bible verses that then I just go and cherry pick my own. I'm not interested in that sort of a book, specifically one that I would believe is authoritative and inspired for my life. The passages like this shouldn't be avoided or just handed over to those who have misused them, but actually a deeper inspection, a greater curiosity of what's Paul getting at here. Is that actually what he meant? Like I said, is I'm not interested in that sort of Bible, and I've come to find that passages like these shouldn't be avoided, shouldn't be explained away, and in fact, greatly reward closer inspection. And when we do that, when we lean in with that curiosity and that deeper inspection, we actually join the long line of Christians who have pointed to this very same passage as the motivating texts for their work of protection and abolition. For them, as they were moving out into their world, dealing with the sociological issues of whether that's abuse in the home or slavery. It was Ephesians 5 they pulled from saying, look closer, read slower, don't cherry pick, follow Paul's thought and line of thinking, which we believe is the Spirit's own. And so as we jump into the passage today, unapologetically, this is going to be a little luxury, a little more teaching at times. There's going to be practical as we go. But I, we cannot afford to ignore what Paul's doing here. We can't af- afford to uh, avoid it, just handing it off to others. Specifically, if we as Christians believe, those of us here, are called to be missionaries within our city. How do you answer those that say the Bible is sexist, it's, it's bigoted, it supports slavery and child abuse? when that's how these sorts of passages have been utilized. We need really good answers. Ones that come from us not explaining away, but rather a, no, actually what Paul said was. Actually what scriptures are showing is. And so in order today to begin by looking at what Paul wrote, before we do that, we're going to look at how Paul wrote it. Now as we went through, you might have noticed that Paul gave three pairings of six individuals. Did you notice at the beginning, wives and husbands, children to their fathers, slaves to their masters. That breakdown is not original to Paul. Paul's not just kind of like, you know, let me write something for the household codes, and we'll start with them. That breakdown, that ordering, is something that Paul's pulling from that was common within his day. Going back to these political philosophers like Aristotle or Plato, Philo or Josephus. When these authors, these political theorists and these philosophers would get together to try to write and talk about, to discuss together, how should the the ideal society be ordered? Talking about Caesar and Rome and the equestrians and all these different groups was just far too grandiose and big. So at Philo, Josephus, Aristotle, what they did is they focused on the smallest little composite part, the household, and used that to talk about the dynamics that would then could be put on a larger scale within the society, starting with small in order to implement something big. It's Even before we get into the similarities and differences with Paul here, Paul in writing to husbands and wives, he's not just talking about those of us that are married. Paul talking to fathers and children or slaves, he's not just talking about those relationships. He's giving a larger paradigm that's at work here. And so 
why don't we spend some time with Aristotle and Plato, Philo and Josephus, to get a little bit of understanding of, of, okay, so what's Paul responding to? What's he answering to? Now, the ancient non-Christian household code was all structured underneath a patriarch, a head of the household, the free male, the master, the lord, the pater familias, if you want to get really fancy. And so if you want to throw that up, what you have is the whole house in these household codes was built around everyone living in a posture of submission, respect, honor, reverence, and service to for the comfort of the desires of the head of the household, as Aristotle kind of coined the phrase. Now, this breakdown was built around a particular way of understanding humanity, that the head of the household, the man, was fully human, rational. He had autonomy and authority. He was fully human. In the Roman understanding of the world, it is the men at the top, the fully citizens, those, that is full humanity. Humanity was identified with masculinity and with autonomy and freedom. Underneath that, you had everyone else living in service and support to the head of the household. Wives were understood as being uh, partially human because they had limited rationality in that line of thinking. They were more emotional than rational like men were. And so they were seen as not being fully human. They were kind of half, partial humans. And by joining in the relationship with a man, that's kind of how they began to find like a better emphasis of living out of their humanity. Children were understood as potential humans. Uh, we, this still continues in my own house today. But specifically, even for children, if you had boys or girls, that boys were potential to become fully human and, and daughters to become that, that kind of partial. You were raising up daughters for the sake of hopefully marrying them off. Slaves were absolutely non-human. No autonomy, no freedom, understood as having no rationality. And so the household codes were written exclusively to patriarchs, to the head of the household, saying, here is how you get your house in line. Here is how you get everyone to, um, uh, to respect and to serve, how to get them submitted to you. This is the framework. You can, and this isn't Ryan like pulling some weird history stuff out. This is Aristotle. This is Plato. You can Google search and, and you can read. This is not some Indiana Jones came out and like, this changes everything. We've had these books all along that this was the way of understanding the household in the Roman world. This is Ephesus. This is the direction that Paul's writing into. Now, I just, I'm giving, there's no test at the end. I'm just setting this before us so that we can begin to see what Paul's getting at when we start hearing the language that he uses. Let's look back at verse 21, where Paul writes, submitting, or, or it's written as a command, submit to one another. That language of submit immediately brings us back into these household code language of the head of the household, the submission being to the, the subordinate, their honor and their service to the superior. And he says now, keeping in mind the direction, the flow of everything, Paul says, submit yourselves to one another. The subordination, the superior, all of that language that Paul sees now is directed towards one another. This is a, analogous to in Galatians 5.13 where the Apostle Paul wrote, in love, become slaves to one another. Paul is immediately moving the, the, the hierarchy as being a, this collective submission that's beginning to happen. What's the basis of this? 
He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you remember back to the direction of the household, the respect and the fear, that language that was given to the head of the household, Paul now identifies and makes that the basis of our mutual, our collective submission. It is reverence, respect to Jesus, to Christ. What Paul's just done is the overarching vision of what guides us through the rest of this passage. Paul has just redefined the Roman household code with Christ as the new head of the household. He is the one that we submit to, respect, revere. We serve Jesus. He's the one that we're all directing our lives towards. He's the one that all of our lives are focused on now. And and our um, um, understanding of being fully human comes from our connection to him. Paul, this was his whole developing thought of what he's been doing throughout all of Ephesians, hasn't it? Of Christ becoming the new head of this new humanity, uniting us together in him. And and his uh, status as being the new head of the household is he's unlike all of Rome and all of Aristotle and Plato's words. He doesn't domineer respect, but he actually moves in a posture of self-giving love for his people as seen in his cross. Even more than that, in Ephesians chapter 2, that through that cross, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between the races, the social hierarchies that we use to order ourselves between one another, that those have been torn down and that we as a new humanity have been united in him. His honor is now my honor. His righteousness is my righteousness. His is mine, and I am in him. And then now, as a community that's in him, Paul says, y'all collectively submit to one another. That the ways that you submit to this new, the new head of the household is by doing it for one another. Now that's beautiful, this humility, this service, thinking of others more highly than yourself. But you can imagine those hearing this command is going, well, that's, that's beautiful, that's great. We've been united in Christ, but outside the doors of our church building or this home that we're gathering in, in Ephesus, our relationships are not equal status. There is a hierarchy within our relationships because though Jesus may have ordered us one way, Rome still orders us another. How do we submit to one another in that? And so there's a little map of where we're going to go and just kind of to follow Paul's line of thought. In 521, he opens up the collective submission kind of phrase, what we just looked at, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the big vision Because Jesus is the new head of the household, the one that you give reverence to, this transforms your relationships. And again, he's using the household code because even if you're uh, single, you don't live with your parents, you don't have any kids, and you're not a slave or a master, the framework of collective submission under the new head of the household still applies for you. Paul's pulling from Aristotle. He's in conversation with the culture. And the big takeaway that we see as we move through Ephesians 5 and 6 is though our submission is collective, it is not evenly distributed. Paul gives greater calling in both quality and in quantity for the husband, the father, and the master, those whose society places on top. Cynthia Long Westfall, in her incredible book on Paul and gender, you'll see it behind me, she writes... In the pairs of relationships addressed in in what we just read, the wives, children, and slaves are to maintain behavior that's acceptable within their culture, while the directions to the husbands, fathers, and masters are revolutionary. 
Paul places the responsibility and obligation for sociological transformation, there's your, your $2 word for the day, in the Christian community upon those who have power while he reverses the culture's negative evaluations of those without, all of this being consistent with the teaching of Jesus. So here's, here's the short sermon, right? The short version of today. Jesus Christ is the new head of the household. Because all of us in the church have been united in him, we submit to him as we submit, we defer, we serve one another. In particular, and especially with those who have some area, some avenue of of leadership, authority, power, privilege, that those are the ones that in order to follow in the way of Jesus, for us to go and do likewise, it requires us to consider ourselves and what that means. Now, we could read Philippians 2, a little meditation, pray, and be done here. <laughs> some of you, by the end, maybe, maybe uh, wish that I would. But maybe some of you are still going, okay, how does that play out in, in, in this passage? You've still got plenty of questions. Some of them being right from the jump. So Paul wrote this, but why didn't Paul just, like, topple the patriarchy? Why don't we just have, like, a call to abolition here? It, it seems that Paul, yes, transforms patriarchy by placing Christ at the head, as one author put it, that he's uploading this new humanity software to the old humanity hardware. Yes, he's doing that, but why not just tear down the whole thing? For us as, as modern readers, we immediately ask this. Why not? Why is, why is Paul putting up with the old humanity order, this old way of things? The first way to just to mention is that Paul was not a citizen of a democratic republic like you and I live in, with a a right to not just uh, free speech, but voting and even the peaceful transition of power. Paul's day, and it continues within our world today, change came through the sword. Change came through violence, and it came through death. It came from the defeat of those in power so that you may then take power and implement the social changes you see fit. Even next week with Independence Day, this is our own story. But the reality is, is that Paul sees this as being antithetical to the way that the kingdom of Christ advances. As he says next week, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul sees this is not the way that we do things here. And even more than that, in the countless slave revolts and rebellions that happened that were immediately squashed and amounted to nothing throughout Roman history, Paul knows it won't, it's not going to get us anywhere. So what do you do faced with that? Paul, looking out at Roman culture, he sees that, that even for him to overthrow slavery, to, to give, to call for legal freedom for these slaves was likely not true freedom at all, as we're going to detail with the way that Rome had structured it. And that legal freedom for the slaves, as we've even seen within the American South with Jim Crow laws, that freedom isn't always free. So Paul's thinking through, okay, what do we do? How do we apply this new humanity? And the only other way, it seems he sees, is a faithful witness as a church community developing and displaying what the new humanity, the gospel-made family looks like. And then specifically as that grows and those in power are coming in and joining it and implementing a new alternative within the world, it then gets demonstrated at work within a city and that that actually leads to being able to change things. And so in an age where there's no conceivable way to lift up others in the movement of equality, What's so profound is that Paul, in light of the gospel, sees his calling as everybody goes down. Instead of everybody becoming free, he talks about all the free people becoming slaves. It's a dynamic that Paul would want us 
to consider. And for many of us, this is not what we'd want. Like I said, we want Paul to come through and like, you know, can you hear the people sing? Singing the song, like, and he comes in with the, like the flag and like, we're going to bring it out. Anybody? Lee Miz? No? Yeah. Andrew Probasco is my only friend, now, some of you. That we, we expect uh, Paul doing this and we need to be aware of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Which this is where we get mad back at Paul and his place in history from a posture and place that we wouldn't be able to be at if it wasn't for the development of Paul's line of thinking here. As again, we're going to detail once we get into the slavery stuff in a bit. And this is all of this. It's, it's subversion, subversive submission, as we call all the way back in 2019 in 1 Peter. Paul's developing that same line. So let's, let's see how this plays out first with our wives and husbands. When we jump into verse 22, we see Paul address wives. We immediately see him do something that no other household code did. Every other household code told husbands how to get their wives in order. Paul addresses the wives as dignified, free moral agents, fully human members of the Christian community. Not to be subjugated, but to be invited into this way of submission. And then in verse 22, as he calls for them to submit themselves to their husbands, this is rooted not like Aristotle in their uh, inferiority, but as an application and deepening of what he just said in verse 21, of us submitting ourselves to one another. So that, hear, hear that. that. For Paul, whatever submission of wives to husband looks like, it is a deepening of what wives already give to the church community, not a marked difference of. This is connected even more without getting super into the Greek that I know all of you guys, some of you like, the rest of you fall asleep. So I, the, 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 the framework of what Paul's doing when, when we study the Greek of what he was originally writing in is that, um, that, that it's just, it's evident in sentence structure and the way that the grammar plays out that for Paul, the submission of wives to husbands is a connection to, it is a run-on sentence. It is the Greek word connected of submit. Is, is, it's all, Paul sees the wives' submission as an extension and flowing out of that collective submission that we give to one another in the church. And so what that submission then looks like is he starts by first actually minimizing the husband's place in the whole thing. In verse 22, he says, submitting to your husbands as to the Lord. He roots her submission to her husband as being ultimately to the true head of the household. That she gives of herself because she has given herself to Jesus and is following the way that Jesus operates. And she's doing this not because of her partial humanity, but because of her full dignity following in the way of Jesus. But he doesn't just minimize the husband. He then shapes the wife's perception of marriage away from Aristotle and Plato. And he begins to talk in verse 23 and 24 about this head and body relationship between the husband and the wife. If you guys, I would, if you don't have your Bibles open or your, your, follow with me and just notice as we're going through. That's what I'm going to be doing throughout. In verse 23 and 24, he begins to develop this framework for the husband is the head of the wife. And then he compares this to Christ being the head of the of the church. So he helps shape her perception of her marriage as being a mirroring of Jesus's relationship to the church, dignifying her role. She stands in and is a representative of the church itself in this dynamic. Now, for many of us, this leads to all the questions about what does Paul mean by saying the, the husband is the head of the wife, right? Maybe that was the initial thing that said, okay, what, what does head mean? 
And there have been books and books and books, and I read most of them this week, spilt on what does head mean. For some, like we use, head is a, a multifaceted uh, metaphor within our own culture as well. And it was in the Greek. Head can, can mean authority. It can mean like the source of like a river. It can mean preeminence. It can mean, there's, you fill in the blank with what it can mean. But what I, I've, I've come to do is I think those conversations are, are necessary, but I think they're, they're a waste of ink sometimes. Because there's two primary ways that we can understand what Paul's doing here in calling the husband the head of the wife. The first is Paul is identifying the husband as being the head of the wife as being that's the way that Rome has ordered things. In the same way that he's going to deal with masters and slaves, that Paul doesn't necessarily go, oh, that's the right thing. But he's more of going, that's the role the husband finds himself in within the cultural head of household thing. So now the way that you husbands live into that looks fundamentally different than the rest of the husbands out in the world, right? The other way of reading this is that Paul doesn't so much have a problem with headship, of husband being the head, of having a a kind of a chief responsibility within the marriage for how this marriage is doing. That he doesn't so much have a problem with that, but the, um, the way that Rome has applied that. So one has kind of like, Paul is like far more like equality in marriage, and that like it's just, you know, everybody, this, this mutual submission and even the headship stuff is not God's ideal. Um, but husbands, as you find yourself, wives, as you find yourselves within the way that Rome has structured you, this is how to do it like, like Jesus' way, right? The other one is, Paul and, and Jesus, the Spirit through him, actually acknowledges there's a responsibility that plays out within the marriage relationship. But the problem that Paul's taking up is not so much that dynamic, but it's misuse and abuse within the husbands in Rome. Really godly, like not just like pastors, but marriages have been built on these two ways. Because as we're going to see, in many ways, they both lead to the same dynamic at work. But all that to say... That's worth, it's worth a good, a good chew, specifically for those of you that are, that are husbands, to kind of like take a walk and, and process over that. But let's look at what he addresses as husbands. So if the husband is the head, what does Paul call them to? First, Paul once again does what no other ancient household code did, calling the husbands to love their wives. No other, Aristotle, Plato, none of them called for husbands to love their wives. Even more when we look, again, once again, without getting too, too uh, geeky, but you can email me and we can over, over this next week. Um, the grammar of Paul saying, love your wife, is, is the, the, the case ending of what he's doing there. It, it ties back to the collective submission stuff in verse 21, and within the wife, then in verse 22. So the husband, this love, whatever this means, is, is the form in which he plays out the collective submission thing. Even if there is that head of household stuff that, that, God, that he still sees this dynamic at work. Because Paul grounds that husband's love in the self-giving example of the true head of the household, Jesus Christ, and his self-giving for the church. So Paul is just, you just see, he's going through and he's subverting all of these cultural understandings of what it means for the husband to be head. Even more, he subverts the Roman ideals of masculinity. In verse 26 and 27, how does he describe the work of Jesus for the church, that self-giving love? Now, we could expect here, like, his, like, that he leads the church and he guides the church, right? That he rules over the... We could expect all of that language, but Paul is reconstructing the Roman ideals of headship and masculinity. He describes Christ's saving work, not within the Roman ideals of masculinity, but the work of a slave, 
washing, that uh, presenting without wrinkle, doing the laundry, all of these metaphors that he's pulling from. In verse 29, he talks about cherishing and nourishing, feeding and keeping warm. Paul takes Christ, who is meant to be the example of what every single husband is ideally moving towards, and he describes him not with the Roman ideals of autonomy and authority and power, but of what slave women do in the house. You, I, 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 can't, I can't put this into words for us. We don't hear how sharp this would have been for these husbands. To hear their ideal of what it means for them to be the husband, for them to be the head of the house, like, that it's being described with the language of what slaves do. When in a society that put all of its efforts on the right, rigid boundaries of what slaves do and masters do, of where we are and you are, Paul is pulling the husband down to being in a posture of service to his wife because he sees that as what Christ has done for the church. So he's redefining whether it's Roman or he's now reasserting God's view of headship or both. Whereas the Romans use that head of the household language to domineer the body, Paul takes that language, head and body, not about domineering but about unity and oneness. Whereas they talked about the head being on top and the body being below Paul uses that language to talk about the the shared unity and oneness that husband and wife have. This separation that culture would want to give them does not apply within a a Christian marriage. And then in verse 29, he calls the husband to love his wife as himself, giving what one author put, the golden rule of gender relations, of loving your neighbor, loving your wife as yourself, that he is to treat his wife as he'd want to be treated socially as a man. The dignity, the honor, the respect Paul calls for you to treat her like you'd want to be treated. And he grounds all of this unity in the biblical portrait. In verses 31 and 33, he quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, saying, man, this is, this was, this is not the Roman thing. This was God's original intent and ideal for this marriage. This self giving love, and specifically husbands, as you enter into, again, whatever, whatever way you want to read that thing of what it means for him to be the head, the, regardless, the case is, is that they mirror and display the self-giving love of Jesus for their wives in a way that completely subverts the Roman order. Okay, so let's deep breath. <laughs> that was, I know that was a lot. To bring this from Ephesus 2,000 years ago to Los Angeles today, we could spend all day tracing this out. I'm actually going to be spending all afternoon uh, in a premarital, uh, preparing for marriage class on just this. But for those of us here, I would just invite those uh, of us here that are married to consider, what does love and respect, what does this self-giving submission look like for me to give to my spouse? Husbands in particular, we may not be in Ephesus anymore, but there is still a a patriarchal ordering at work within our society. Like as much as we have moved out of that, we are not uh, fully out of this. If you don't believe me, just Google search mental load and you will find out there is still a disordering in in how this stuff plays out so often in the household. And so this this sermon may change in 20, 30 years from now when, you know, everything's... But for the sake of all things and where we're at right now is that Paul's words still continue to stand for husbands. Whether you think head is only social or theological, Paul's words still stand clear. There is a greater calling on the husbands of loving like Christ has loved you. And that is we're going to require you to give up more of yourself for the sake of your wife. 
And so it's a super simple starting point for husbands. Okay, where do I go from here? Sit down your wife and just ask, how can I serve you in the week ahead? How can I make your needs my own in the week ahead? And based off Paul's analogies here, at the very least, it's washing <laughs> and, and doing the laundry. And all the wives said amen. <laughs> so I, I, Paul is inviting us into this way of a collective submission, and he identifies that for husbands, there is a greater, whether you want to call that responsibility, a greater calling to mirror for their wives the self-giving posture of Jesus, of entering in and taking on the posture of slave for the sake of his bride. And so Paul then continues. So now he's dealt with marriage. Now he deals with children. Look with me in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, where Paul, once again, children, obey your parents, does what no other household code did. He addresses these children as dignified, free moral agents, fully human members of the church community. One scholar uh, estimates that about 40% of most early church communities were made up of children. 40% of the church were kids. So 40% of the room, Paul says, children, and their eyes and ears, they light up. The apostle Paul's talking to us. Nobody talks to us unless we're in trouble. And he's calling out of us. He's saying that, that we have something to do there. And he calls for these children to obey their parents not because of Roman rule, not because they're potential humans, but because they're fully humans. God's commands for them is that this is right. This is righteous, Paul says. He gives this biblical precedence, quoting from the Ten Commandments. Even more, he then says, you obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Like with the wife, he is saying, well, children, your submission to your parents is ultimately to your true father. That you obey your parents as an outworking of your obedience to the Lord. But notice what he does for the fathers in verse 4. To the fathers, he says, Do not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He prohibits the fathers from attitudes, words, actions that drive their child to exasperation and to resentment, that provokes them to anger. Now, as a dad, I know that very often the right thing, me telling my kids to do the right thing, makes them very, very angry, which is why the emphasis for Paul is on that word provoking them. That, that use of fathers of severe discipline, giving their children unreasonable demands, abuse, unfairness, favoritism within the home, nagging, condemnation, humiliating our children, insensitivity to them as children... Paul prohibits all of it. And strikingly different than the household codes that stressed very strict discipline so the child would not annoy or trouble the father and the old household codes that specifically called for discipline so that those sons may become like their fathers. What does Paul do? Paul writes that fathers no longer raise their children only for their honor or for their ease or to be like them, but the instruction and discipline of the Lord. His job is now to raise them up into the honor and likeness of the true head of the household who is not them anymore, it's Jesus. Paul has just likened the role of the father to like an enslaved pedagogue or, or a tutor that the father would bring into the home specifically to raise up his kids so that these kids may live in, within the home in the right way and ultimately to be his inheritor, his heir 
Fathers are now to identify, oh, I'm not raising my kids up for my own aspirations and my own dreams to be like me, to look like me, or for my ease and my convenience. I am in many ways an enslaved tutor of King Jesus, of the true head of the household, to raise up these little kids for him, to be like him. He's turned the whole Roman thing on its head once again. And so just to get super practical, Kids that are listening, some of you that don't have like your headphones in or doing the iPad thing, and that's totally okay. There's a reality. God has given you your mom and or your dad as how he wants to guide you into who he made you to be. And so when we listen and obey him, we're trusting that God is at work within our mom and dad to help them guide us into who God made us to be. For our parents here, we are very prone to raise our kids for our convenience, or on the other side, to treat them like little gods where we place all of our hopes, all of our failures onto. If you've ever go to like a kid's sporting event, you can find the dads who have put all of their expectations and all of their failures and hopes onto their kid. Our task is to submit by laying aside these selfish desires to giving ourselves to raising our children not into who we want them to be, but first and foremost, who God has made them to be, who Christ has called them to be. That is our great task. And so there's going to be times when we fail. There are going to be times when we fail. But part of raising them up in the instruction of the Lord is displaying repentance to our kids. As one, one pastor put it, that was the greatest gift my dad ever gave me, was showing me what repentance looked like by apologizing to me when he didn't when he didn't live up to what he knew he was supposed to be as a father, as a husband. Paul's vision is for fathers, for, for parents, for us to see ourselves as not raising our kids up for ourselves, but ultimately for the true head of the household. Now, beyond that, into our community, Paul's vision for children as full members of the church, being discipled in the way of the Lord. This is the priority for us on us relaunching our kids' ministry. Our kids, as like kids on iPads, is not a win for us. This is a concession as we're trying to call us to submit to one another, to serve one another. Because we identify and see that these like little kids, like some of y'all can't even hang with with like how long I go. <laughs> like we think our kids, but having our kids being able to have teachers who are guiding them and parents that are serving within those roles as well, helping disciple our kids, not to replace mom and dad, but to partner with them. That's what we want, but that's, that's for um, Discover Collective class tonight. <laughs> Let's move to slaves, as if this hasn't been big enough. Verse 5, what does Paul write? He writes to, first and foremost, um, bond servants is how we have it in our, in our English translation. Um, it's, it's the word for slaves. A footnote should say that for you. Some translators now put bond servants into this. That's them trying to help us delineate and see the difference between Roman slavery in Paul's day to uh, what we saw within the American South, within our own story of chattel slavery. They're trying to delineate and show the differences there. And though they are different, uh, Roman slavery not being motivated by racism or the practice of manumission, slaves being able to purchase their freedom, um, I, I, I go back and forth on, on whether or not I think that's the best, most helpful tool because it downplays the similarities. Uh, Lynn Kohick, in her commentary on Ephesians, pulls together some historical studies, and it all kind of builds up to this on slavery in the ancient world. She writes, those who compare slavery to uh, the slavery of the American South with that of ancient Rome are quick to point out that slaves in the ancient world could gain their freedom while the American slave had no such opportunity. 
this observation, while in some sense true, is misleading in several ways. First, few agricultural or mining slaves were released. Most died on the job, a job similar to the hard labor of American slaves. Second, few female slaves ever received freedom unless it was to marry their owner or owner's son. Third, manumitted slaves, that's slaves that were able to work up enough money to purchase their freedom, joined the ranks of freed men or freed women, not free persons. This was a middle category that still included obligations toward the owner's family, including a percentage of any wages or income. Most importantly, that middle category still carried with it the stain and shame of slavery. In sum, slavery in the ancient world was not more civilized, beneficent, or necessary societal institution than that which existed in the American South. Difference, not, I don't know if enough for us not to see that slaves is what's at work within the text here. So what does Paul do then if this truly is about slaves? Paul does what no other household code did. He addresses the slaves. Once again, it's what he's been doing throughout. When every single household code told masters how to keep their slaves in line, Paul addresses slaves as dignified, free moral agents, fully human members of the Christian community. He calls for them to obey their masters, but not out of an inferiority, and certainly not, like with children, with a biblical justification for their obedience. Notice that Paul gives, like with both marriage and with children, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Genesis for marriage. He quotes from the Ten Commandments for, for parents and children. No biblical justification with slaves. No, for it is right, like he did with children. Even more than that, he describes the masters as being their earthly masters, masters according to the flesh. He's used this letter throughout, or used this word throughout the letter as everything that's always belonging to the present evil age of sin, evil, and death. So yes, masters, according to this evil age, this is far from him being okay with. This continues in Paul's other writings. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, Paul identifies those who kidnap to enslave as being ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. Paul doesn't identify this as being the best case scenario. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, he, he calls for slaves for at, at all levels possible to purchase your, your manumission, your freedom. Yes, being a freedman or freed woman is not the same as full-on freedom, but it's, it's a better alternative. And so work, if you can, get into that place. Paul then works to shape the perception of the slaves, for them to do the best work they can where they're at, not as slaves of their earthly masters, but of Christ. To work well, not because their masters would treat them well, but because they believe that they have a true master who sees where they're at, that is identified with them through the work of Jesus and him taking on the posture of a slave. As he ends saying, whatever good you do, you will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. The God who watches and sees all things shows no favoritism to social order, and he undercuts the evaluation of the master's power. On the other hand, to masters or to lords, Paul's words are succinct and severe. He says, do the same for them. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, immediately understood this, that Paul was urging owners to serve their slaves. 
giving the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That within a Christian household, although we cannot throw off the slave and for, for you to immediately just set everybody free, masters, what that might would lead to is them being abused or misused by another master. For you to help them work themselves into manumission and, and you to do the same for them as they do to you along the way, to serve them. He calls for them to stop your threatening which is to undermine the very basis of their ability to control slaves. It was through threatening. It was through violence. It was through force. If you're not paying them well enough, then violence and force is the one way you get them to do things done. Not so for Christians who find themselves in this spot. And no caveat even for like disobedient slaves where Paul's like, you know, no threatening unless you got a really, no place in the household. And then he ends saying, knowing who is both your master and theirs, and that in his eyes there is no partiality. There are no special privileges in this new household of faith. The very bedrock for slavery is special privileges. But there are some who are inherently better, higher than others. And Paul undercuts that at its very root. And he equalizes the owner as being a co slave with their slaves, that their social status of master is of no account in the true master's eyes. They are reduced from master to fellow slave. Now, summarizing this, we're beginning to wrap up. Of all of the world's religions, including the three great monotheisms, only Christianity developed the idea that slavery was sinful and needed to be abolished. Our movement of abolition, of freeing slaves, of all people being equal is predicated and built on a Christian theology and a Christian worldview. Even as we have progressed to try to continue to develop the kingdom without the king, of biblical ethics without the Bible, it is predicated and built. We are standing in the home that has been built by a Christian understanding of humanity and dignity. And so for Paul... Though unable to change society at large, we get this. Him working and trying to get to the best case scenario in the way that things have been ordered. You can flip over to one of the shortest books in the Bible, Philemon. Paul's letter to a master, the most socially disruptive letter in the New Testament, where he calls for Philemon not just to free his slave Onesimus, but to serve him as a brother. Nobody was writing or saying anything like this in the ancient world. And any, any framework that we have today is predicated and built off of the movement that came to us out of the New Testament, out of the Jesus people, out of the church. And so maybe Paul isn't as abolitionist as we would like, but within a few generations we get history's first abolitionist. Historically, history's first abolitionist was Gregory of Nyssa, who's a pastor and church father, who gave the most scathing critique of slavery in the ancient world. Within a few generations of Paul, we get this in his sermon on Ecclesiastes. You say, I got me slave girls and slaves. For what price, tell me? What did you find in existence worth as much as this human nature? What price did you put on rationality? How many coins did you reckon the equivalent of the image of God? How much gold did you get for selling that being shaped by God? God said, let us make mankind in our own image and likeness. If humanity is in the likeness of God and rules the whole earth and has been granted authority over everything on earth from God, who is his buyer? Tell me. Who is his seller? To God alone belongs this power, or rather, not even to God himself. 
For his gracious gifts, it says, are irrevocable. And God would not therefore reduce the human race to slavery since he himself, when it had been enslaved to sin, spontaneously recalled us to freedom. But if God does not enslave us, if God does not enslave what is free, who is he that sets his own power above God's? Anti-slavery doctrines were accompanied then, built out of the New Testament by the eventual disappearance of slavery in all but the fringes of Christian Europe. And the abolition of New World slavery that then has developed the story within our own nation was initiated and achieved by Christian activists, all of them motivated by a strong reading of Ephesians. So though we have had people that have misused these passages to identify, to call for slaves, to submit to their masters regardless of how their masters treat them, the question is not how has this book been used, but how has it been used rightly? How has it been used correctly? And then from there to refute, to rebuke, to encourage, and to move forward in the right reading of that passage, like Ephesians is what we've seen today. So Paul's household code utterly transformed social relations with Christ as the new head of the household. And because of him now, a collective submission to one another as our calling to each other. Remember, this is not a paradigm just for the nuclear family, but all of society. In particular, for those of us with more power, with more social status, to set those things aside and to take up the posture in the community of servant and slave. So as we wrap up, specifically this being our second to last week in our Collective Again series, as we move out of 2020 and we're beginning to be the church again, fully looking to our future and where we're going from here, Paul is giving us a calling and an invitation to collective submission. The way the church is filled with the Spirit, that we walk in our reverence and respect to Christ, is by serving each other. Especially in a day and age where so many of us relate to our church community from a posture of the head of the household. We engage with the church as if it's built around us and our desires and our wants and our needs, and it's here to serve us for what we want and what we can get out of it. We want to be a community, a church that leans into this submission of love and humility and service, like Paul wrote, in love becoming slaves to one another. And, and without, you're going to think it's silly for a second. Serving on Sundays is the first step of this process. Serving on Sundays is not about us pulling this thing off. But it, like everything else that we do on Sundays, is meant to set our posture up for the week ahead. We pray in our gatherings, believing that that posture gets set in a direction of prayer for the week ahead. We sing and worship, so we might move into a week of, of singing and praise. We have communion and thanksgiving, so we might work into a week of contentment and thanksgiving. We study scripture on Sundays, so we might move into a week of engaging with scripture. And when we step into serving on Sundays, we are setting the posture of our hearts in a direction towards collective submission for the week ahead. It's far more than just like we need people to greet. It's about you taking a little step of this thing doesn't revolve around me. My life is not built up for me. And that's why it's, this, it's, the, small, it's the smallest little thing. We want to be a community that looks like this. Beyond Sundays or in our church gatherings and in our community, we also need to hear really loudly Paul's responsibility and calling in the collective submission, that there is a greater calling for those who have more power, more privilege, more social equity, responsibility. You fill in the blank with what you will. 
this requires all of us, especially for us that are husbands and fathers and, and you know, maybe you know, masters in his day, for, for us to look over what, what is the social evaluations that happen within my city and where do I find myself on the high end and what does it look like for me to give up more in the way of loving sacrifice and submission? Are you healthy? What does it mean to walk in submission for those that are sick? Are you wealthy or at the very least comfortable? What does it mean for you to walk in self-giving love for the poor? Are you housed for the houseless? Are you a citizen for the undocumented? Are you born for the unborn? Are you men for women? Are you white for people of color within our city? Are you free for those who are still enslaved around the world? You just walk through your week and you start looking for where, what are the steps up that I have and what does it mean for me to follow the way of Jesus in submitting and serving others? Because all of this is drawn from the example of our head of household, what Christ himself has done for you and for me. We do not do this for the sake of social equity or social transformation in and of itself, but because we believe this is what Christ our head of household is and what he's done for us. We'll close with Philippians chapter two. With the apostle Paul writing to another church community saying much of the same that he said here. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Yes, have this mindset, this way of thinking among your church community. It's y'all's in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born into the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even further death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Christ has done for you and me. What Paul has detailed today is receive that and don't just let it save you. Let it shape you into people of self-giving love. Let's pray.